You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26er family, welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Jeffrey Wallace. Jeffrey serves as president and CEO of Leaders Up, an organization bridging the divide to create an inclusive anti-racist economy. A native of Richmond, California, Jeffrey grew up surrounded by diversity and developed a keen urge to champion youth and stamp out inequity wherever he saw it. At a young age, he wrote a school paper pointing out to administrators that Black boys were suspended at six times the rate of white boys. He also honed his leadership and public speaking skills as president of the youth ministry at his church. And as one of fewer than 50 men admitted to UCLA without an athletic scholarship, Jeffrey learned through cultural isolation the importance of establishing and advocating for inclusive environments. Holding both a BA and MS in education from UCLA and an MS in organizational development from UC Berkeley, Jeffrey brought his passion and social impact ideology to his career, having worked as a senior program officer for the Los Angeles Urban League. There, he developed initiatives that enhanced education, public safety, public health, and community development for more than 10,000 residents and stakeholders. In 2013, he was handpicked by former Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz To lead a new social enterprise, Jeffrey was offered $1 million and access to thousands of Starbucks suppliers to somehow bridge the gap between those suppliers' talent needs and members of low- and middle-income communities. And from that, Leaders Up was born. Jeffrey and his team turned that $1 million seed investment into an organization that has connected over 60,000 young people of color to employment opportunities across 100-plus companies, generating over $956 million in economic return to local economies. And despite such massive success, Jeffrey's vision extends beyond just connecting diverse young talent to jobs. So without further ado, here's his story. Jeffrey, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so thankful to be here. Um, It's a beautiful Saturday morning in Los Angeles, just leaving the gym, but thankful to be able to share a little bit more about my story and um, the work that we're doing at Leaders. Yeah. So we, we, we keep it all the way real on this show. Um, So you are not the first car interview. It happens, (laughs) right? People are busy. You're running a whole enterprise over there in California. So we understand it. We appreciate you taking the time out to be with us. And productivity sometimes calls for doing things from the car. Yeah, absolutely. You got to multitask. And I think at the end of the day, being a fantastic leader is having uh, the ability to demonstrate agility. How do you take opportunities in the moment and make the best out of them, optimize them, and ensure that at the end of the day, you yield the value that is being expected from you and that you expect in your life on a day-to-day basis. Absolutely. So listen, let's make sure you have some time to continue to be productive after <laughs> this interview and jump right into it. Let's do it. Who is Jeffrey Wallace? Uh, Jeffrey Wallace is uh, a native of Richmond, California, in the Bay Area, proud native of the city of pride and purpose. I am um, a social entrepreneur. I learned early on in my career that we have the ability to design transformative solutions that have been holding back, particularly Black people and other Indigenous people of color. Um, I'm an executive producer of an award-winning digital series called Giants. Uh, And I also just consider myself to be a part of uh, the 
portion of the leadership of Black America that is focused on, you know, really eradicating this anti-racist economy, I mean, this racist economy to ensure that we build an anti-racist economy, one where Black folks and people of color um, have the opportunities to win just like everyone else. So I'm going to do this a little out of order. We mix it up sometimes here on the show. Sure. Um, you know, we usually start with, oh, tell me your origin story, where you grew up, and we're going to get there. But anti-racist economy, I'm jumping straight to that. Let's go. Because I think the the nature of the time that we're living in and the season that we're in, uh, it's really impor- important to unpack these kinds of issues. So tell me what you mean when you say anti-racist economy. Well, we first got to really just understand that America's economy is racist by design. Mm. When you initially look at America and how we built this global economic power, we built it on the backs of enslaved Africans, right? So from the start, America never really valued human capital, labor, and the talent that particularly African-Americans contribute in order to build, again, the most um, impactful, influential economy in the world. So when we double click on this racist economy, there are three areas that are holding particularly African-Americans and other people of color back. The first is education, equitable access to understanding uh, what skills I need in order to be competitive, not just in this current economy, but in the future economy. And that ongoing education to be upskilled in a way that we are ahead. What are we thinking about Bitcoin, blockchain, the whole digital economy? We should be mastering those skills right now. The second thing that um, uh, anti-racist economy is really focused in on is equitable access to employment and promotion. So how are we really ensuring that Black people have access to career pathways that go beyond entry level and middle management and go into the executive level? How are we paving the way for Black folks to also sit on boards and influence corporate culture? That's significantly important when you think about the private sector employing 100 million people. That's 75 percent of the labor market in America. So we think about the influence of employment career pathways and governance structure and corporate. That's another thing that we need to address in the anti-racist economy. And last but not least is compensation and benefits. White men making a dollar, black people are making 77 cents on the dollar. We need to close this wealth and income and quality gap. In an anti-racist economy, that gap does not exist. And quite frankly, what it will build is close to $3.2 trillion to the economy. Uh, We're talking about close to 18% of the economy growing just by ensuring that African-Americans and people of color have the ability to maximize their economic potential. So that's what I mean when I talk about an anti-racist economy. You you just dropped a bomb in the start of this interview, right? Which I I I knew you were going to do. Listen, listen, and I lit it on purpose. I lit it on purpose, right? So, you know, we, it's interesting having this conversation in light of our dear sister who was, whose tenured offer was pulled from UNC. I don't know if you, you heard about this uh, this no, past week. Yes. Yeah. So I'm going to rely on DeMarcus to get her, her name for me and, and drop it in the chat. But it's all because of her connection to the 1619 Project, right? So there's, there's mm-hmm. so much um, backlash with respect to telling the truth about this country's history and being honest about whose backs it was built on. You know, people people call it woke culture and conservatives have all types of criticism around that. What has led you to feel so empowered to particularly with the co- connections that you have which we'll 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 get into in the role that you play. What has really led you to feel so empowered to be able to speak the truth about the racist roots that this country is it was essentially planted in? Well, I mean, first, you know, as any businessman knows or business person, excuse me, knows is that in order to go from good to great, you got to first face the brutal facts. 
And America needs to be, go from good to great. COVID-19 shook us down to our core. From the standpoint, we know now that systemic racism permeates every inch of America, from public health, to the way that we run our schools, to the access to broadband, to the ability for folks to just have a high quality of life. So we just got to face the brutal facts. And then at the end of the day, we got to speak truth to power. There are too many Black folks that have died at the hands of racist police officers and police systems for us to lay down. That coupled with COVID-19 and the impact it has had on the local economies of Black people around uh, a country and just our health. You know, at the end of the day, um, I was doing some research and white men lost eight tenths of a year because of COVID-19 and their life expectancy. Black men lost three years of our mm -hmm. life expectancy because of COVID-19. So I think it's incumbent upon leaders like myself and more importantly, leaders a generation ahead with more influence to speak truth to power. And at the end of the day, that's what this is about. Martin Luther King was assassinated, not because he had a dream, because he was about to attack the racist, structural, economic system that was holding African-Americans and people of color back. And at the end of the day, I feel like I'm purposed to be able to ensure that from an economic lens, from a community development lens, and just from the standpoint of ensuring that entrepreneurs are thinking more holistically around how, as we build wealth, we need to be intentional about being anti-racist ourselves and leading in that nature. So that's why I feel purpose to do this. And at the end of the day, um, if not me, who else? Mm -hmm. To at least get the conversation going and amplified. Agreed. And Nicole Hannah-Jones is her name. We speak your name, sister. Like we're, yes, we're big yes. on that, really calling people out by name and the important work that she's doing that has essentially um, put a damper on her career trajectory. Now, people are protesting and all of that, and we'll see where it lands. But um, the, the conservative attack on what you just mentioned and referenced and speaking truth to power still blows my mind that, oh, yeah. you know, we, we engage, we're expected to, to bury our heads in the sand and engage in revisionist history and pretend like things haven't happened in the way that they have for the sake of um, avoiding making certain people feel uncomfortable. Well, I mean, true leaders master being comfortable in uncomfortable situations, number one. Mm -hmm. That's assuming that there's true leadership on this conservative side of America right now. Like this narrative that is out there associated with uh, unemployment benefits, that people don't want to go back to work. No, what has happened because of unemployment insurance plus the stimulus package associated with that, folks got a better quality of life. Folks are making on average 18 to $20.25 an hour on unemployment. Why go back to a $15 an hour job? Right. And we've been fighting for 15 for five years, which is important. But at the end of the day, this is the type of narrative that is false around people being lazy, especially people of color. People want to work. I have never met somebody who has not wanted to work in the work that I've done over the last seven years. I've never met a young person that didn't want access to a quality opportunity or what we call career plus at Leaders Up. You just want, we just don't want a wage. We want an inclusive environment with psychological safety. We want a great manager that's going to coach us. We want a career pathway in this company so that we can grow and add more value. That's career plus. So when we think about this conservative narrative around, you know, revisionists here is quite frankly, we've been working for free in this country for 300 plus years. We're owed some PTO. So if we want to take some time off, we can. Let's be clear. <laughs> like, give me my great, great, great grandma's PTO. I mean, okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that and that is a point that I've been making. Right. Like we as a people, if you want to speak specifically around, around black and brown folks, we've been socialized. And not only do you work, you work hard. It's what you have oh, to do if you want to be able to pay your bills, et cetera. But also folks are burnt out. 
and they're tired. And if somebody said to me, you know what, I just want to, even if a job was being offered to them that was going to pay the same as unemployment, if somebody said to me, I've been working since I was 15 years old, I've been working since I was 16 years old, and I know plenty of Black folks especially who have that narrative, I'm going to use this time to rest and recharge. I have no judgment around that. I have no judgment around it. It's, 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 what, it's what you said. People are owed that. They are owed it. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's important that in this time with COVID-19 and with all of, again, the, the, the crazy behavior going across the nation as it relates to social justice and injustice for that matter, Black folks are due and people of color are due some time to just rest, reflect and recharge. Um, and as a CEO of my own company, I'm very, very intentional around ensuring that we're making investments in the people that are part of our team or what I call our frontline experts. Like we invest in, we don't have any uh, employee, employee contributions as it relates to health and dental and vision benefits. We have a flexible account for childcare and for uh, mental and behavior health services. Like being intentional about ensuring that as a leader, you're investing in the folks that are working alongside you and get, making space for people to understand that they are being seen, that they are being protected, that they are being respected is important. And if folks don't get that, then you don't deserve the type of talent that my people actually contribute to this economy. Absolutely. And just in the first 10, 11 minutes in this interview, it's evident that you, of course, have a high IQ, that that's without a doubt, and that you're a leader and an activist. But also um, what I think is, is shining through for me is that you also have a high EQ, which there are a lot of CEOs who don't have that, right? That, that there's a leader and there's a leader who not only has a passion for the work, but a passion for people, both, both the people who, who work for them and also the people that they serve. So thinking back to your, your history and your origin story, where do you think you really saw the light, for lack of a better word, where you thought, I'm a leader and I, I'm meant to lead people? Um, I would say there's three areas of my life that really you know, uh, are foundational to my leadership uh, style. Um, the first would be uh, my father. Uh, I was blessed to be raised in a household with a father that was ensuring that we understood that, one, you're being raised to lead. You're a leader, not a follower. And, I, uh, and from a standpoint of ensuring that at the end of the day, you remember who you are, whose you are, and last but not least, that you are Wallace. And there is a level of, I think, self-identity and awareness that comes with that, that all leaders need to understand around having a village in their corner that actually has their back, having some wind in the sail. And I got that from my father. My father always pushed me and my mother. Uh, but significantly, uh, the more I embrace my leadership style, it's a lot like my, my father, the best elements of that. The second thing I would say is I was in marching band and marching band taught me a lot. Um, the music department and my musical journey in general taught me a lot around discipline, around staying focused, around being able to collaborate in a group, being able to most importantly, what I learned from being in marching band is that you got to lead from the front. You want to be drum major, you can't lead from the side. And it's important that you lead from the front because as a drum major, you set the time, you set the direction, you set the cadence around everything that's going on. That's important for CEOs and other leaders to understand is that you can't lead from the periphery. And a lot of folks these days want to be adjacent to racial justice or adjacent to racial equity um, and not core in the center of anti-racism. And the last piece um, I would say is uh, my fraternity. Alpha Phi Alpha. Um, Alpha Phi Alpha really anchored in me 
a commitment to service, um, serving other black men to be their best from the standpoint of iron sharpening iron and also uh, being able to leverage that type of um, precision and focus and impact that you can make through Alpha Phi Alpha in the community. Uh, it was through Alpha where I learned the true influence of the African-American buying power in America. And that if you consolidated Black spending, that it would be the 13th largest economy in the world. Uh, we don't learn those types of things because, again, like you say, from a revisionist history standpoint, or just from the standpoint of making folks not understand their true power and their identity, those are the types of things that we don't lead with. And Alpha really repositioned my mindset from a standpoint of, you know, our position of agency that we have in the community and our responsibility to much is given, to whom much is given, much is required, and those that have much even more is asked. So that is like the root of who I am as a leader and ensuring that at the end of the day, the through line of that is servant leadership. And we've had multiple alphas on the show. There, There is a running joke uh, that we say that the alpha interviews always run long because y'all know y'all can talk. Uh, <laughs> but one thing I will say is that the, the tenants that the fraternity is built on and the, the benefits we've even had from a show perspective and the other things that we do, um, you all are the real deal, both both in, in intellect and in deed. Um, so I, I can and, you know, not to mention our producer extraordinaire of the show, DeMarcus is an alpha as well. So um, we, we have nothing but praise for the organization. So but thinking back to being involved in music and the other things that, that you were doing at the time when you were preparing for college, what was the vision that you had for your life and career? At the time, I wanted to be a, a music teacher. Hmm. So I went to UCLA, studied music and got a master's in music education. I was a formal conductor of the wind ensemble there and I was going to go into music. Um, and then I was like, well, maybe I need to make some money. So I started thinking about writing music for film. So I studied that. Then I became an alpha and all of them were uh, lawyers. So, or in law school. So then I took the LSAT and I was going to law school. <laughs> uh, but I think what really uh, informed, you know, my continued education, um, the true inflection point where I knew what I wanted to do. And that was to build organizations and businesses that empower and equip our community to be its best is when I worked for Alpha for a year. And I worked mm. for the executive director of the general organization and our general president as their executive assistant um, and did everything from scheduling rooms and flights to helping write, you know, the strategic plan and policies and procedures associated with our strategic plan, excuse me, our Alpha regulations. So it was just a transformative experience for me to understand the importance of organizational development um, and doing that with an intention of, uh, creating a triple bottom line. One, where your company wins and benefits because if, you know, your company ain't making money, it's a hobby. Two, where the people that you employ, they benefit. And three, where the local economy benefits. So uh, it was at that point where I pursued my master's in organizational development and just continued education in various fellowships like the Brookings Institute and Presidio uh, Institute to really harness this ability to build cross-sector collaborations that, again, create this tie for our people to rise on. So let me ask you this, since you mentioned um, the sort of the three-pronged bottom line, often there's a belief that when you study education or creative pursuits or things that really touch on social justice or economic development, particularly in quote-unquote urban areas, 
that you take a vow of poverty. Did you, did you, you mentioned that you felt like you needed to make money, but as you started to look at these other areas, i.e. organizational development, did you say, okay, if I go in this direction, that means I'm limiting myself in terms of my own economic growth uh, by working in these fields? Well, I think that's a false narrative mm-hmm. that you have to, in order to make change, you can't make change to put in your pocket as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's why I intentionally lead what I'm a social entrepreneur because entrepreneurship in itself is the ability to take an opportunity and monetize it and, ger- and generate value. Um, now let's, look, let's be clear because that's also, I think, a narrative that we inflict upon ourselves because for the sake of the community. Um, and I don't uh, look towards whiteness for moral, uh, moral centeredness. But what I do do is examine the landscape. And when you look at the head of these national nonprofits out here, the United Way, uh, large-scale institutions, these CEOs are making a tremendous amount of impact, and they have the same type of compensation and benefits as a for-profit company with the similar size of revenue and income that is generated. So at the end of the day, you want to make more money, ensure that your nonprofit, you know, or any business that you uh, have is what I call epic, and this is trademark. This is ensuring that your business is experiential, ensuring that it's profitable, ensuring that it is impactful, ensuring that it's creative, and ensuring that it's of the culture. You mix those key elements into your business, then you will build something that is sustainable. And when you drive that, that focus and that model applies to for-profit business and nonprofit business. So it's about you being an entrepreneur and because the money is out there for all business. It's about being able to understand your niche and headshot concept and generate value, in my opinion. And that's why I brought this up, because if, if anybody, if people don't realize you can look up the 990s for a lot of these, oh, yeah. these nonprofit organizations the and you I see the what the executive compensation looks like. It is out of this world. It, it's not, you know, we, we do. And I think part of that is driven by, you know, this concept of like there's money out there, but it's not accessible to us. And I think we've internalized that. So people do, uh, they equate doing certain types of work, whether you call it social justice, whether you call it social entrepreneurship, uh, conscious capitalism, whatever, whatever you might call it. A lot of people in our communities, they associate when you do that, you, you do take a vow because there's, there's no way you can make the money that the, the others make, which I do agree that it's a false narrative. And then the other fallout from that often, I think, is that those who really break through the barriers and do have access to capital and, and have a, a simultaneous like professional and personal glow up, if I may call it that, where they mm-hmm. are living their best lives. They look fabulous. They're rubbing elves of people. There is a backlash for that as well. And people start to criticize and accuse folks of utilizing philanthropic donations they may have gotten or misappropriating funds. Um, there's even judgment if you get, say, a book deal. And you're making money off that, and and you started as a as an activist yeah, or a social justice, see, that's right? The that's the thing. Is that, excuse me. To hop, may I hop in? Yes. That's the thing. Like even with the sister leading the Black Lives Matter movement, that narrative was false. Mm-hmm. And that's the type of racist, deconstructive behavior that we allow to permeate, and that we believe that sister had multiple revenue streams beyond the nonprofit and foundation that was funding the prolific work of the Black Lives Matter movement at scale. I think at the end of the day, we have, we have to own that when we are doing something that is transformative 
and this is at the ground level, at the you know system level, or even at the global level, that the enemy, and I'm not saying that as white people, but the enemy in a spirit, in an energy that does not want to see change is going to be uh, up against you. It's like Absolutely. for every action, there is a reaction. And you just got to understand that, that if you're going to be that, be that one and keep pushing. Because at the end of the day, the backlash comes from the haters. Mm-hmm. Like, because at the end of the day, even the, not even, but when I look at these large scale nonprofits and their CEOs and senior leadership teams making money, they're making the money that they built an organization to be able to sustain and use. So at the end of the day, um, used to drive their mission. So at the end of the day, we have to take that same ownership and move in the same way and have our ducks in a row. You know, at the end of the day, you should, if you're running a nonprofit organization, then you have an annual audit. You have a third-party audit committee. You ensure that you're filing the proper uh, tax filings and things of that nature, to your point, like the 990s, to be up to snuff. I think that's the thing about our people in general that we have to focus in on intentionally is capacity building and ensuring that uh, our folks know what to do. Because when we know what to do, we just don't do it. We do it exceptionally well. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important for us to ensure that at the end of the day, that we don't be afraid of opportunity. We be prepared for it. I think it was Whitney and Young said said it best is that I'd rather not have opportunity than have it and not be prepared for it. Mm. And I think it's important that we've been prepared for. And that's why it's important also for us to be able to understand our own identity. What higher power are we tethered to? I'm of the Christian faith, so I'm tethered to God. And I understand that the work that I do is purposeful. And God, God be before me, who can be against me? And what happens to me is for a reason. It's for my growth. It's for my development. I might not like it when I'm going through it, but I know I am going through it. And at the end of the day, we need to be proponents of the correct narrative. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, when we can circle back to my sister that was running the Black Lives Matter movement, the information was incorrect, even though it was on national media. Where do we hold folks accountable right. for correcting the narrative and pushing out a more uh, positive and actually evidence-based narrative? And that's where a lot of our influencers got to come into play in protecting our own village. I don't have the influence to really stand out and be able to uh, proclaim that this was, you know, to, to protect folks of that magnitude in a way. But there's a tremendous amount of entertainers, a tremendous amount of athletes, there's a tremendous amount of folks of wealth in Black America. At the end of the day, again, to your point earlier, I got to start speaking truth to power more consistently. I'm not saying that we're not doing it, but more consistently and with intentionality around protecting our best and brightest that are on the front lines ensuring our communities have the opportunity they need to succeed. Absolutely. And and I think, you know, this is where I, I firmly believe that you can look like me and still have internalized white supremacy. Um, oh, and, and so when things like this, these headlines come out, I was looking at the folks who were sharing it, right? And it was a lot of, a lot of Black people saying, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. So we, we often, uh, our communities often will take the information and spread it like wildfire because it confirms whatever suspicions they might have had. And and then when the truth comes out, you know, that, that there's never a, a correction or a retraction. At that point, it's all it already has taken on a life of its own. So do you think there it, there's a way to really deconstruct this issue and deprogram our communities in a way 
where we're not making snap judgments based on the narratives that we've been fed by people who don't even look like us. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we need to recenter our community on three things, love, dignity, and respect. Being able to demonstrate love um, in the you know the spectrum of love, whether that's filial, brotherly love, agape, you know, you know, all types of love, and be able to be secure in loving unconditionally and loving in a way where we have each other's best intent, you know, and treating people with dignity. And I'm talking about capital P people, non-binary. At the end of the day, we are an intersectional group of people, and we need to understand that our intersectionality is our truest benefit, and just respect and honor honoring how Black women show up, honoring how Black gay men show up in this world, Black trans people, honoring the commitment that everyone makes and the investment that everyone wants to put in. Because it's never about equal giving, it's about equal sacrifice. Mm. And for me, going back to our core principles that are not anchored in this deconstructive white narrative around what Blackness is, because quite frankly, Blackness is what they gave us to organize us. It's not who we are. Mm. Can you expound on that a little bit? Well, race is a social construct. Mm -hmm. If we really think about what differentiates people and groups is ethnicity, right? So even from the standpoint, your people from somewhere different than my people, different from where some people from DeMarcus, uh, different from where DeMarcus people are. But at the end of the day, what uh, white supremacist culture have done is created race to create this, this false notion of a monolith that we are all the same. And what that does is that diminishes our intersectionality, which is the diamondism of being Black. But at the end of the day, how dare anyone ever say that my people are lazy when we built this country for free? Mm-hmm. So when I talk about Blackness, it is something that has we, we as a people of innovation and creation have transformed into something that is prolific, that is universal, a culture that is at the forefront of everything global, every global trend starts with some element of Black culture. There would, no be, there would not be American music without the Negro spirituals that folks sung in the, uh, in the, um, in the fields, trying to keep their head above water, pushing forward to, uh, to build this country. So when I talk about Blackness being something that was laid upon us, it is this, you know, this false construct, social construct of race that really is America's Biggest Achilles heel, in my opinion. Mm. Because at the end of the day, this, this deconstructive strategy of divide and conquer is really counterproductive to our most valuable asset, which is our diversity. Why? Because America's diversity is a microcosm of the global economy. If you can win in America, you should be able to win across the world because you're dealing, from a, dealing with a whole spectrum of a multi-ethnic, multicultural economy in your own front yard before you go global. It is our truly most valuable asset. And at the end of the day, we've developed a system and structures anchored in race that is counterproductive to us being successful moving forward in a more sustainable way. And we know that you're not just talking about these issues, you're effectively tackling them every single day, uh, particularly through your company Leaders Up. So. First, let's talk about, for for those who don't know, tell them what Leaders Up is. So Leaders Up is a national social enterprise and talent development accelerator that's focused on bridging the divide between the untapped potential of young people and building an anti-racist economy. 
an economy that closes disparities centered around the wealth and income inequality gap in the areas of education, employment, compensation, and benefits. Over the last seven years of doing work, we've connected 60,000 plus young people to employment across three cities, Chicago, San Francisco Bay Area, and Los Angeles County. Um, and I've been able to do that with 200 plus companies to generate $956 million in economic return. We focus on young people between the ages of 18 to 29 by providing them career coaching. And we work with companies that have a commitment to racial justice to helping them incorporate anti-racist practices through consulting in our Evolve Employer Network, which is a network of employers focused on driving a more inclusive recovery to COVID-19 and constructing a sustainable anti-racist economy. So how did, how did Leaders Up come about? So Leaders Up came about through a Starbucks corporation. Uh, Starbucks Corporation, the Starbucks Foundation, my mentor was the uh, head of that foundation and invited me to a meeting about how to leverage Starbucks' 18,000-member global supply chain to attack the youth unemployment issue that was running across America at the time. There was 5.8 million young people between 16 to 24 that were out of school and out of work. Um, so I went up to the meeting, and they asked me a whole bunch of questions about what I would do. And by the time I got to my next destination, they asked me to start the company and uh, awarded me a million-dollar seed investment. And from there, we've been growing an organization that has you know, raised the profile of demand-driven strategies that are able to connect young people to transformative career pathways. Uh, we've been able to really master a model of mass hiring. I'm now going deeper into the trenches as it relates to being able to work with companies that, again, have made these statements around racial justice and racial equity and now translating that into some action and a strategy that is really going to help them deconstruct racism. So let's unpack this a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. Because not everybody gets called to, to have a meeting and even provide this. Like they don't even get there, let alone knocking the meeting out of the park, obviously, and then being offered this amazing opportunity. So what was the groundwork and the foundation that led you to receive the call to, to get this meeting in the first place? hard work and Mm -hmm. being able to build relationships. So uh, one of my mentors, uh, power attorney in California, Angela Reddock, when I came out of grad school, she gave me a job, a subcontracting job working for the Urban League with her. And uh, I worked very hard in working with her and developing a human resource information system for the entire company. And this is a company at the time, or a large nonprofit at the time, that had just converted over to a new HR system. That got me audience with the CEO, Blair Hamilton Taylor at the time. And um, in doing training with him and doing that in excellence, um, that impressed him. So he wanted me to become his special assistant. So I worked with him and managed his entire department in uh, the president's office and worked to uh, ensure that we also have, you know, the best board engagement strategy. So I led efforts around board engagement and board strategy. Um, When uh, Starbucks started to make institutional investments into the Urban League, Blair uh, was offered a role as the chief community, community officer at Starbucks. So when he went up to Starbucks a year later, he reached out to me because we had been doing a lot of work around youth employment um, across the Urban League and youth development across that strategy there in Los Angeles to give audience to my thoughts on the uh, opportunity uh, that was set before them of you know, really activating all these businesses around youth unemployment. So in a nutshell, since it's all about social capital and being mm-hmm. able to be intentional around maintaining and building relationships and demonstrating value 
to in those relationships that sustain them and proving, you know, through consistency that you have a work ethic that people can rely on. And more importantly, I think that people can trust that you do what you're going to say you're going to do in every situation. And with those mentors, I was able to build that level of rapport. And from that point, they extended opportunities. My first job with Urban League with Angela, the promotion and giving greater leadership with Blair at the Urban League, and then Blair moving on to Starbucks um, and selecting me for this opportunity with Leaders Up. And I think that is, you're right, absolutely right. I agree with you that social capital is really the major element that a lot of our young people are missing, that a lot of us are missing from that element of being able to break through, mm-hmm. you know, that breakthrough moment. Uh, but that also, you know, that also relies on us and putting ourselves out there, going into the growth zone, leaving our comfort zone, and building those types of relationships and maintain and having the discipline to maintain them. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm glad you, you mentioned that because I talked to, of course, through this show and in my personal network, a lot of Black folks who struggle with imposter syndrome, right? We, we get in these roles. It might be an amazing opportunity and it's an opportunity for growth, but we're so used to having to show up and be ready and be able to knock it out of the park every single day, uh, they, that when we get into a role where there's some parts of it that may be unfamiliar to us, then we feel like I'm not ready or I don't have what it takes. When really there should be an expectation that you bring your skills, particularly if you've been brought in to solve a problem, you bring your skills and you utilize those skills to help grow whatever that thing is, whether it's your own enterprise, whether it's somebody else's. Now, in your instance, you have a major, uh, household brand, like everybody knows Starbucks that says, here's a million dollars. What were you thinking in that moment? Were you thinking, I'm ready, I got this? Were you thinking, okay, there's some parts of this that I may not even understand, but I'm going to figure it out? Where was your mindset at that point? I I had no idea of the magnitude of the, and the responsibility and just, I didn't know what I didn't know, quite frankly, because I had never built an organization before. But what I did know is that I had a village of folks around me that would support me, mm-hmm. right? I had a clear vision around how I wanted young people to thrive in America through career pathways. And I knew that I could do anything I put my mind to and if I'm exposed to the right game. So what I did is I understood what I was good at and what I didn't know and started seeking information. And there mm-hmm. again lies the importance of having a network and being focused in on social and, have, and growing your social capital. I reached out to my fraternity brothers. I had a fraternity brother that helped me set up all of our legal infrastructure as it relates to contracts and building a team. I had another fraternity brother help me develop our accounting system and select an accounting firm. Um, and I had, you know, a network of friends that I worked with that had the ability to design programs, to do research, to be able to, you know, build something with me from the ground up. So I knew I wasn't alone. And a lot of folks think that they got to do this stuff alone. Quite frankly, we're we're not we're People of color and Black folks, we're tribal. We're communal folks. It's important for us to be able to do something, you know, with folks. So, you know, for me, the imposter syndrome I've experienced, I was one of the only Black men in the music department at UCLA when I was studying there and never had taken um, private lessons before. But at the end of the day, again, I was blessed enough to be around some, someone that cared about me to say, no, you're meant to be here. You had the talent to be here. Now just dig in to be better. Beat these folks at learn the game and beat these folks at their own game. 
Absolutely. And and Leaders Up has grown exponentially in the last seven years. You mentioned that you've helped to place 60,000 young people, which is extraordinary. Thank you. What is your goal for the future for the organization? Uh, right now, our goal is to really spark this movement between young adults, employers, um, system leaders around building this anti-racist economy. We want to build a powerful network of 50 plus Fortune 500 companies that stand firmly and say that they are anti-racist and not just say it, but in action around those areas of education, employment, compensation and benefits. And then also, you know, build a digital network. So COVID-19 required that we pivot significantly um, into a digital space. Now we're going back into a hybrid now that things are opening back up. But our goal is now to build a digital community of 10,000 plus young people empowered and employed across our employment uh, employer community uh, to really help us transform companies from the inside out as well. Um, and to demonstrate what happens when you're able to uh, collectively invest in young adults, their leadership development, um, in order to mobilize a movement around this anti-racist economy. So one of the areas, you know, and I know just from personal experience of working in, in tech specifically, we have young people who are going into STEM uh, focused on the area, but getting the degree, but not having the network or not having been trained and prepared for uh, the interview process and getting through that to actually get in the door. So it's like they have the academic credentials, but if you look at the numbers, there are many people who go to school for tech or study tech or become certified in some way and then work in specific fields, right? They work in fields that are different than what they wanted to specialize in. Is this an area specifically with tech-focused jobs that Leaders Up is focused on? Uh, we have several sectors, or probably sector agnostic that we work in, but most of um, a recent project that we're actually launching with Google.org is a focus on getting young adults the type of career certifications that are in demand. And part of what our challenge is also is that we don't know what to study. Based yes. upon what the economy is actually demanding, right? So there needs to be a lot more transparency around that. So we partnered with Google to take these certification pro, uh, uh, programs that they've developed that have been endorsed by other companies that say, if you take this 90-day, 120-day, you know, or this six-month certification, we have companies waiting to hire you, you know? And we also have companies waiting to build career pathways so that you not only get this entry-level job, which is pretty good, most jobs average between sixty-five, seventy-five $75,000 at starting. Uh, with these certificates, uh, but also how do you move up? And I think more importantly, it's about learning more of the right stuff. Um, but in tech, it's also ensuring that in other sectors as well, that businesses are really intentional about how they are cultivating and developing their BIPOC talent. You know, how are we connecting them into our employee resource groups, ensuring those employee resource groups have the type of resources necessary to provide sponsorship and other opportunities to younger talent so they can grow and get the exposure across leadership um, to build the relationships necessary to break through barriers around promotion in the executive ranks. For sure. Now, we know you're on limited time. So, you know, we, we keep it, always keep it 100 on the show. We have uh, listeners who listen on a weekly basis. So they know our format. They know our routine. They're going to say, this interview is a little bit shorter uh, than, than the other ones. But we want to honor your time for sure. But before I let you get out of here, describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Quite frankly, I would say that's every day. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, as a Black man in America that has a, you know, horrific history of terrorizing 
black people. I think it is one of the most egregious uh, practices of domestic terrorism, of how America at scale treats black people comprehensively across their life. So it's important for me to show up every day and think about how I can be extraordinary, whether that's being an extraordinary son, brother, uncle, to my family, whether that's being an extraordinary leader to the, to the folks and frontline experts that work alongside of me at Leaders Up, uh, whether that's speaking truth to power in situations that uh, might be compromising. But at the end of the day, you know, you give up being right for it, the pursuit of, you know, what's righteous. Uh, every day I push myself to do something that is extraordinary. Um, and now again, that's what I really pull from my father um, and his legacy of leadership is that, you know, either you can have the day or the day is going to have you. And mm-hmm. from my perspective, it's incumbent upon us, especially those that subscribe to be for uh, leaders, that we make the most out of every day. Um, my pastor taught us that 85% of what you do in the world, somebody else in the world can do. 10% of what you do in the world, somebody can be trained to do. But there's 5% of what you contribute to the world that is just yours. That is your contribution. So I really focus in on leaning into my five, that Jeremiah one in five purpose that sets me apart. And once you understand your purpose, it's easier. It's not easy, but it is easier to be extraordinary because quite frankly, there's no one else that can contribute what you contribute to that day. So I rest in that power of my sis every day and really ensure that, um, you know, we got to keep pushing because I think it's upon our generation now to look uh, beyond ourselves, uh, cast aside egos and figure out how we just build a game plan where everybody wins because it is out there. Yes. We just got to get more organized. Um, and I'm willing and focused on doing that work right now. And where can people learn more about you and the work that Leaders Up is doing online? You can learn more about me um, uh, and Leaders Up at www.leadersup.org. Um, you can follow us on Instagram at leaders underscore up um, and on Twitter at leaders underscore up. Um, and I so thank you for this opportunity. I'm willing to also do a part two, given... <laughs> <laughs> my limited time and um but i hope that um the conversation had will be beneficial to the listeners and i just appreciate the opportunity absolutely and we do a lot of part twos around here so it's definitely possible thank you so much for for joining us today to our listeners you know what to do if you enjoyed this episode tell somebody about it like share subscribe if you are interested in the work that jeffrey and leaders up are doing Go ahead and find them online. Follow many of us work at organizations and very large corporations. Uh, if you feel like there's an opportunity for partnership there, please make sure you connect. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER. 